uh, I have the blessed privilege of having one more Sunday out of the pulpit, so I will not be preaching God's Word today, but I'll introduce to our, our preacher here in a moment. Um, but just kind of want to give you a heads up where we're headed. Uh, when I get back, I'm anxious to get back to preaching next week. We'll be spending three weeks wrapping up our preaching series through the book of Ephesians. So we've got three weeks left in Ephesians as we prepare uh, for Advent. We've got some exciting things uh, planned for our Advent season. We'll do things. It's our first first time doing Advent together as a church, so we'll get to set maybe some traditions and try some things out, and that's the fun part about being part of a church plant. So that's kind of where we're headed for the rest of this year. Uh, today, we have the privilege of hearing from uh, Ben Coppage. Uh, if you were with us, I think it was this summer. Ben was up here preaching uh, for us this summer when I was able to, to be away as well. Ben is the uh, Reformed University Fellowship pastor at New Mexico State University. So if there's any Aggies here, you're going to be friends with him and us Lobos can just, we'll just give him a, a little side hug and it'll be all right. It'll be good. But uh, Ben is a very gifted preacher. Um, in fact, you know, inviting two good preachers back-to-back -back weeks while I'm gone is always a, a job security risk, but I'm willing to take that. Uh, but we're, we're grateful that Ben has joined us today. Uh, if you have any connections or students at New Mexico State uh, that perhaps are looking to get involved in a great Christian ministry, I would encourage you to get them connected with Ben. Uh, God is doing a great work there. Uh, it's Reform University Fellowship. It's RUF for short. Uh, so this is the, the branch of our denomination's uh, campus ministry, and if you know anybody in New Mexico State, please get them connected with Ben. But let's, uh, let's invite Ben up to preach God's Word. He'll be preaching from Colossians this morning, so we're, we're glad to have you, Ben. Thanks. Well, thanks, everybody. It's uh, really good to be back up here with you at Mosaic this morning. Um, I'm excited uh, just a couple of months ago this summer to be back and see uh, how God is taking care of you guys, uh, growing you. The church that I'm at right now in Las Cruces is the first church I've been a part of in the past 10 or 12 years that wasn't, isn't a church plant. So I kind of, I love how church plants roll. If you're new to church, you might not know this term. This is a church plant. It's kind of a, a new baby church. And uh, almost every church I've been a part of uh, since I've been a Christian has been a plant. And so like last time you show up, the internet's not working, and Tito's up here running the whole service from his uh, podium, and y'all are rolling with the punches. Like, I love that kind of thing. It keeps you on edge. One thing about church plants is um, Adam and his wife can tell you, and he pastor can tell you, they, they're fragile. Uh, here's a, a couple examples. When I was a kid, I thought, man, being a kid is great. Parenting's the easiest thing in the world. I have a few disagreements with how my parents are parenting me, but it felt strong and easy and simple. When I was a student, school felt simple and easy and straightforward. When I went to a church, church felt easy, simple, and straightforward. But then I became a parent and realized how complicated and fragile parenting is. I became a teacher, realized how complicated uh, and confusing teaching can be. And I became a pastor and realized how fragile church can be. And uh, that is why it's so encouraging to come back here and to hear stories uh, from Adam when we get to uh, talk periodically about how God is taking care of you guys, these can feel like a house of cards sometimes. Like you have something built, you turn around or you go out of town for a week and you come back and you're like, is anything still going to be here? Uh, if the Lord doesn't build a house or build the church, uh, we labor in vain. And so uh, what's so encouraging is this doesn't happen apart from Jesus loving you and caring for you and uh, loving this church and what this is about. One other thing about church plants 
is that uh, if you've been a part of one very long, you can get very distracted because it's an all hands on deck thing. And so you're not just sitting here, you're the one setting up the chairs or you're the one who did this or you're the one who's running sound or a musician. And so maybe the sermon's the first time where everybody except for you guys in the background and the sound gets to kind of be still and, and listen. And so what was on my mind a few minutes ago is this story of Mary and Martha and Luke where Jesus pops into someone's house for a little house visit and uh, two sisters, Mary and Martha. Mary is sitting on the couch talking with Jesus. Martha is in the kitchen busily getting the food ready or the drinks or hospitality. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, Mary has chosen the better portion. He says, you're, you're so troubled and anxious with many things. Your sister is aware of what's happening right now. She's sitting at my feet listening. And so this morning, I wanted to talk about Jesus. It fits really well with what y'all are going through in Ephesians. Colossians is so similar to Ephesians. So this will sound very familiar to you. But in the midst of your distraction, in the midst of being troubled by many things, anxious about many things, even this morning, uh, I would love for us to be able to sit at the feet of Jesus and not just listen to him, but watch him and see him. And so we'll be looking at a very famous part of scripture uh, from a letter to the Colossians, um, which I'll read in just a second. But let me give, let me give you a heads up about where we're going to go. Um, I titled this sermon, Meet a Bigger Jesus, because that's what this passage is about. There's three things, uh, if you're uh, this kind of person who likes structure and notes, uh, this is a place where Paul shows us Jesus is uh, supreme, and so you don't have to fear. He's seeable, and so you don't have to guess. And he is sufficient, and so you don't have to supplement him. He's, he's supreme, he's seeable, and he's sufficient. So let me read this passage. This is from Colossians uh, chapter 1. Uh, verse uh, 15, and this is the word of God uh, for you this morning. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. By Jesus, all things were created. Things in heaven, things on earth, things visible and invisible. Doesn't matter whether it was thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, everything, everything was created through Jesus and for Jesus. Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, his church. Jesus is the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. It's in Jesus that all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell, and through Jesus to reconcile to God all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Paul turns to us now and he says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, Jesus has now reconciled in the body of his flesh by his death. For what reason? To present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray. Jesus, our confession, we've already begun this confession earlier, we repeat it, our confession is we are the distracted ones, we're the anxious ones, the toilsome ones. Our bodies are here and our minds are 
likely a few other places as well. Our emotions are at other places. Our desires are at other places. We want to be all here this morning so that all of us can meet with all of you. But we know why we pray to you, Jesus, that you are the powerful one and we're the weak ones. You're more in this relationship than we are. And so we pray that uh, you would enable us to be all here to meet with all of you this morning. This is our prayer to you. This is our, our pleading to you. And we ask this with great confidence because we know you love us. Amen. Anna and I like to travel. And since we've moved to New Mexico about four years ago, uh, we've kind of made it our goal to visit a lot of the little cool little towns in particularly southern New Mexico, but also up here in northern New Mexico. And whenever I get to a new city, what the question I love to ask is, why is this city here? Not in an existential sense, like, why are we here? But in a geographic sense, why is this city here and not somewhere else? So we were in Silver City about a month ago, or yeah, about a month ago, we went up to Silver City a weekend away from the kids, and Silver City is an obvious answer to that question. Why is Silver City in the middle of nowhere? Any direction, it's Gila Wilderness, and then there's Silver City. Nice little downtown, like all kinds of businesses. Why is it there? That one's easy. Sometime in the 1800s, somebody found silver in the rock around Silver City. It's lucrative. You can make a living on mining silver and selling it. And so little silver mines began to pop up and dot this area in the middle of the Gila Wilderness. And when you have a lot of miners in town, you need roads to get to and from the mines, get supplies to and from there. And when you have roads, you need road builders. And when you have road builders, you need homes for them to live in. And when you have homes, you need grocery stores. You need saloons so they can take a little break. You need, all, you, you, you need a city. Silver City is built on top of treasure. You build cities on top of treasure. Silver City is where it is because silver is there. New York City, uh, when I lived in Philadelphia, New York was an hour and a half bus ride from us. And so we'd go up there all the time. And Standing in Times Square asking, why is this city here? Why here? It's super, if you've ever been there, it's like you get nervous because it's so packed in. It's tiny. It's this tiny little island with one of the biggest city in the nation squeezed onto it. Why here? You think back to when the city was founded. Any direction you go, there's water, which means ports, which means commerce, which means 360 degrees Life and the resources that life requires can get in, and your stuff can get out to make you money. The Hudson River, all of these resources can come down right from Canada and dump on your lap, and you can send all your products upriver and sell them. New York City is where it is because it's built on treasure, ports, commerce, industry. Albuquerque, Las Cruces, any of these, pretty much any city uh, in southern New Mexico, why is this city where it is? It's the river, right? It's life. It's water. This city couldn't be 20 miles that way. It couldn't be 20 miles that way or that way or that way. It has to be here because of the river, because of the valley with the, the fertility of the valley and, and its ability to sustain agriculture. Albuquerque has to be here because this is where the treasure is, the water is, the soil is. Cities grow on top of treasures, lives grow. Lives are built on top of treasure, right? When you find treasure, stop, build your life there. 
just like with a city. Now, here's the problem. Just because you live on top of treasure, just because you live, you're surrounded by life-sustaining resources doesn't mean you're aware of it or you know it or you care about it or it makes any difference in your life, right? It is possible to have grown up in Albuquerque or any of those other cities and be sick of this place, be bored about life here. Maybe this is all you've ever known and you're like, is this all there is for me? Surely there's a next step. Surely there's another place that has a little bit more to kind of, this is, I've been there, I've done that, kind of worn out my welcome here. This is a tired kind of town, like familiarity breeds contempt. Starting to feel like the walls are closing in, like I want to get out, I want to get somewhere. Uh, you'd be the rare person maybe in Albuquerque, but in Las Cruces, uh, the 22-year-olds who graduate, who've grown up in Las Cruces, town of about 100,000, a lot of them are itching to get out. And the reason we, we get to these places where we're itching to get out, we feel like we've depleted all the resources there, right? There's nothing left for me here. Got to go to somewhere else to kind of tap into life. And so even if we're still physically present in a city, uh, we start daydreaming about these other places. So some of my students, physically present in Las Cruces, emotionally and aspirationally, they've been gone for a while. They're living in some other world, which has practical effects, right? Like you kind of know it and people have checked out a little bit and they're on to the next step, but their body is still in your small group or, or your child, like they're still living in your house, but they're really living somewhere else. This happened to me uh, my last year in my college town, Athens, Georgia. I spent 10 years in my college town for a variety of reasons, uh, undergrad, and I had a chance to go to graduate school for free there. And so I was like, let's do it. Had a job after that working for four years. And so 10 years in my college town of Athens, Georgia. It's a great city. It's a legendary college town. But by my last year, I was kind of over it. I was like sick of the problems here. I, everything I just said, I, I, I was antsy to get out. Been there, done that. I've kind of I've soaked up all, all this city has to offer. And so that last year, my mind was in Philadelphia where I was moving next. And uh, my dreams, my hopes, my aspirations, that kind of like sharp edge of life happened when I thought about Philadelphia until my last month or two in Athens. Very inconvenient time for this to happen, but I don't know how it happened, but I started to like rediscover Athens, Georgia. Running trails, like this beautiful of running trails in forests by rivers I never even heard about. My last year, I'm like randomly, let's pull down this street and see what's here. It's like, Whoa, I would have been in better shape if done this 10 years ago. Restaurants, like hole-in-the-wall places where it's not just the food you die for, but just the feeling of the place. It just feels like home. I found those places my last month. Be people in church that I'm like, where have you been for the past 10 years? I feel like my, my time in this town would have been really different if I'd known you uh, 10 years ago instead of meeting you a month before I left. So this weird thing happens my last month in town. I went from daydreaming about another place, being phys physically present but emotionally absent, to you, I was like clinging with white knuckles to this city by the time it, I had to leave. They were dragging me away. I fell in love with Athens all over again. And it was like I'd barely scratched the surface of this place. I can't leave now. There's so much more for me here. Felt I could have lived another 10 years or more uh, in Athens 
all coming from a place when I felt like I had depleted its resources. There was no more water in the sponge. So I was ready uh, to move on until I rediscovered it. Here's why I tell you this story about cities that are built on treasure, lives that are built on treasure, about this angsty feeling we all have to be on the move. What's next? Is this really all that's there for me or is there something else? I think Paul is having a similar conversation with his people with this passage I just read. It might not seem like it at first, but the very end of the passage, Paul is saying things like this. He predicates everything he's saying If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. In a sense, he's acknowledging these are people who are feeling antsy. These are people who, like us, are tempted to move on past Jesus because we're wondering, is there any water left in the sponge? Is this really all there is for me? Haven't I, and you might not, state this because red flags go off in our head if you state Jesus isn't enough for me. But maybe you feel in your bones, is this really all there is? There's got to be something else out there and you're feeling the move to kind of pack up camp and move to another place. So though you are physically present in a church or a small group, Though you are spiritually present with Jesus, you are united to him, married to him, one with him. Emotionally and aspirationally, you're somewhere very different, right? Paul knows what kind of people we are. He knows what kind of people the Colossians are. He's writing to people who have already made the call to U-Haul, who are already daydreaming about what's next, who are already feeling tired, familiar? Do I need something else? And Paul is bringing them back to a place of saying, you need to rediscover the Lord Jesus Christ. The way I rediscovered Athens, Georgia right before I left and realized though I felt I had depleted it, there was no more life in there, I'd actually barely scratched the surface. Paul is telling you God is telling you this morning, Jesus is telling you this morning, you've barely scratched the surface. Don't move on. You don't need anything else. Put roots down here. That's what he means, not shifting from the gospel you've heard. That's what he means, stable, steadfast, rooted in him, growing. He's saying, cancel the call to U-Haul. Put roots down here. There is so much more for you. So these, these three things, I've just kind of categorized them under these three headings of Jesus is supreme, he's seeable, he's sufficient. That's what Paul is talking about in this, what's called the Christ hymn. It's just this, this, this poem, this, this song about the glory, the goodness, the sweetness, the beauty, the power of Jesus. Let's get into that for a second. First, Jesus is supreme, and so you don't have to fear. There's a, there's a practical payoff to all of this. Paul's not just theologizing. Uh, the Bible is not a USB drive that you like plug into the human brain and it just downloads and like just quickly offloads some theological knowledge so you're good to go. It is a formative, a shaping book. Paul is saying Jesus is supreme because this morning you need to hear that. You need to rediscover that regardless of where you are. The reason why the people in this day 
the reason they needed to hear Jesus is supreme is because it sure seemed like Caesar was supreme. Sure seemed like he held all the cards. He held all the levers of power. When your families and distant families and friends are getting evicted from their houses, their property seized by the government, people saying you're not allowed to believe what you believe will kill you if you talk about what you believe. They needed to know that Jesus is supreme. This is why Paul is talking about, hey, though you can't see Jesus now, he is king over the visible and the invisible. He is king, not Caesar. And so powers, dominions, authorities, all of it, evil, the devil, everything is a poodle on a leash that Jesus holds. He is supreme. And so you don't have to fear and you don't have to run and you don't have to leave him and hedge your bets. Get into this a little bit more deeply. He says that everything in history is about Jesus. If he says that Jesus is the beginning and he says that he's the end, we use our deductive reasoning and we say, well, if he's the beginning and the end, he's also everything in the middle, right? All of human history is about the person and work of Jesus Christ for his people. Everything in some way traces back to that. He says everything in creation is about Jesus. He says Jesus was the firstborn of all creation. We'll explain what that means in just a second as more, but at the very least, we need to acknowledge this. Like everything you see here, everything you think, your body, everything, it's all about Jesus. It's all made by him and it exists for him. He holds it together. He is the glue of reality. All things cohere in him, which means politics is ultimately about Jesus. As is science, as is engineering and accounting, as is meteorology, as is physiology, as is economics, it is all about Jesus. It all traces back to him in one way or another. The world is a predictable place because the king who governs the world is a predictable king. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Therefore, his creation is similar yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Therefore, the scientific process, actually humble, good, honest science, yields helpful observations, right? You can predict the weather because Jesus is predictable. Most of the time, sometimes for his own purposes, he pushes pause on these rules and laws and patterns he set up, and we have a miracle, or we have some phenomenon occur, but other than that, The world is predictable and steady because Jesus is predictable and steady. And he orders his creation according to his own purposes. It also means this. There is no sacred and secular dividing wall. There's not like churchy things over here. Like here's Sunday morning and small group and kind of singing some songs on the way into work. And then here's the bulk of the rest of life. Here's my research at work or my job as a student or Here's uh, my bills. Here's my medical life. There is one umbrella, and it is the living God. And everything from left to right, horizon to horizon, falls under his domain. There is no secular space that has a no trespassing sign that's not his. You ever heard of the old pastor and theologian Abraham Kuyper? He was a Dutch prime minister, too. That's quite a resume. He said, there is not a single square inch of all creation over which Jesus doesn't point to and say, this is mine. This is a a big, big paradigm shift. 
Because Paul is saying that Jesus is not an accessory to life. It's not like you have your life and then Jesus is like an ornament on the Christmas tree. Your life is the tree, Jesus is the ornament. Oh, what a sweet, fitting decoration. I really like what this one means. It just, it just really brings the tree to completion. Jesus is the tree and he's the ornaments and he's everything else. It's all about him. He's the sun around which everything else orbits. He's not another orbiting planet with us at the center and our lives there. He's not peripheral. He's central. Paul zooms in a little bit more to our life, the church. He says, Jesus is the head of the body, the church, which means church, the Christian life, is all about him, which, hang with me here, which means when and where we make the Christian life about ourselves, that's problematic. And we're, we're bound to get ourselves gummed up, caught up in trouble, tangled up, confused, stuck, discouraged, where we begin to resent even God himself. Here's how that happens. Has the Christian life or has church for you boiled down to just the place that gives you kind of emotional steadiness or stability? That's what the Christian life has has reduced down to. Or has it reduced down to one particular struggle with sin? All of life has reduced down to, all of the Christian life has reduced down to your sexual struggles or your hard marriage or the way you were raised that you can't seem to shake keeps replicating itself. Has it reduced down to that? Has it reduced down to therapy? And I'm not saying those things aren't hard and complicated. Don't hear me say that. I'm not saying the promises of God, the grace of Jesus isn't yours today in that place. I'm just saying, have you grown myopic? And all of life with God has reduced down to one little struggle or one piece of suffering. Have you lost the forest for the tree? Paul's life is an interesting case study here because Paul is a guy where the worst and the best happen to this guy. He's like a, a case study in extremes. So you look at Paul and you ask yourself, did his life reduce down to the stuff that happened to him? Did his, did the, did his life as a Christian become just about his suffering or just about his success or failure as an apostle? Did it become just about his sin? A few quick, uh, a few quick case studies in this. 1 Corinthians 4 is a famous place where Paul basically says, hey, you thought the life, life of the apostle was, was the good life? Let me tell you what it's like. He's not venting. It's not kind of unhealthy, bitter, kind of like, well, you thought your life was hard? Let me tell you what my life was like. But it's, it's letting you in on, on a little piece of, of what life was like for him. But again, watch how he traces it back to Jesus. Even places of profound, distracting suffering trace back to Jesus for Paul. He says in 1 Corinthians 4, it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the line like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle or a joke to the whole universe to angels, to human beings. We are fools for Christ. Even there, he traces it back and he sees what Jesus is doing in this ridicule we receive, in this fragile, seemingly fragile calling that we have. He traces it back to Jesus. Some of these others get a little bit more clear. Paul has a salty past, saltier than any of yours. I bet money on that or mine. 
Paul shares his testimony and your, your jaw is on the floor. You're like, wait, what? Should we re-interview this guy, like make sure this is real? He's a murderer. He's a persecutor of the church. He's a systematic denier of the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrection. He was the one the churches were praying to God to deliver them from. This is Paul. He's legalistic. He's self-righteous. He's self-reliant. This is how Paul talks about his own life. Does he get distracted? Does his life as a Christian now boil down to just his story, his past? No. Even that gets quickly shot back to Jesus. Paul says to the Galatians, For you have heard of my previous way of my life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism better than anybody else. I was the most zealous for what our parents passed down to us. But when God who set me up, but then God who set me apart from my mother's womb called me by his grace and was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I might preach Christ to the Gentiles. Even Paul's story is just an occasion to talk about Jesus again. Such a, does this sound healthy to you? Paul doesn't, like, I know, all of us, we get bogged down. We get myopic, singularly focused on sin or suffering or circumstances, and we lose Jesus. We lose sight of him, right? Because we're so focused on the tree, we've lost the force. Paul is demonstrating here great maturity of a life rooted in Jesus where you still see the forest. You can talk about the trees. You don't have to deny it. You don't have to say life's easy. You don't have to say, man, I've never suffered a day since I turned to Jesus. You don't have to talk about the confusion, but you don't lose the forest. He even says it in his suffering. You know the three times Paul prays to Jesus, three distinct seasons in his life where he is pleading, Jesus, please take this away. Let life go back to what it used to be. And Jesus so lovingly says, no, no, no. He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul says after that, okay, then I'm going to boast. I'm going to start bragging now in my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. Just to, just to put the final nail in the coffin that anything in Paul's life pushes him back to Jesus. His, when he thinks about his entire life, he doesn't even think about Paul. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who even live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Colossians, he says, my life is hidden with God in Christ. You can't push Paul anywhere. You can't bring up any topic. You can't get him talking about anything where it doesn't circle back around to Jesus. Not in a simple put a band-aid on it kind of way but in a profound, makes the hair on the back of your head stand up kind of way. Paul knows that the Christian life is about Jesus. Jesus is the head of the body of the church. Jesus is supreme. It's all about him from beginning to end. So you don't have to fear. It's okay to have some trees in your forest that are on fire when you see the forest. When you zoom out and see the whole picture of my Lord who is king, who holds every lever of pain or suffering or trial in his kind, gracious, patient hand. Paul says Jesus is seeable and so you don't have to guess what he is like. 
which is really great news. Uh, I spent most of my life trying to guess what God is like. It was always changing. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. See, the background of my students, very similar to me, always trying to guess what God is like. So they say things like, oh, I could never believe in a God who whatever. That's a person who's making up a God in their own image. Or they say, well, I could, I just, I just choose to believe in a God who, that's a person who's making God up on the fly. Do you know that God has stepped into our lives in flesh, in history, in time, and introduced himself to you? so that you can see with precision exactly what he is like, what his tendencies are, his patterns, his traits, his instincts, his actions, his reputation, his cares and concerns. What kind of people does he notice? What kind of situations make him angry or elated? How does he respond to all kinds of different varieties of sinners coming up to him still in their sin? What's he do with self-righteousness? What's he do with unrighteousness? Do you know that you can see not a one-dimensional theological download of information about what God is like, but you see him in three-dimensional, living color, high definition, walking in motion, in action. God is seeable in Jesus, and so you can know him. You don't have to guess. This is what Paul means when he says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the visible image of of the invisible God. And then he starts talking about stuff like this. It's not just the the factoid that Jesus is 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 the physical, touchable, knowable image of the invisible God. It's not just that. Like, that's cool in and of itself that the person of Jesus makes the invisible God visible. But the work of Jesus... Particularly the work of Jesus on the cross makes the invisible God invisible. I love that in John's gospel, there's this just, John's like just this brilliant script writer. There's this subtle theme throughout the gospel of John where he's talking about the hour. Jesus is talking about his hour. My hour hasn't yet come. First miracle in Canaan when Mary wants him to make more wine. Jesus says, no woman, my hour hasn't come yet. And the hour in John, you would think that his hour of glory would be this triumphal, magnificent, victorious, resurrected moment where he is seen by the world as king. But do you know when his hour comes? When Jesus says, my hour has come, do you know where that is? It's not the resurrection. It's in the garden when he is, he is wrestling with his father on his way to the cross to bear the sins of his people. That is his hour of glory. So if you want to know where is the living God, where is the real God most visible, most knowable, it is Jesus panting, wrenching his body, wrestling with his father as he sits under the wrath and curse of God. That, if you want to see God for who he is, It is him dying for his people, being ridiculed and mocked by the very ones he is liberating. That is what God looks like. That's what he's like. In his own moment, not distracted, but still has his eye on the ball. And so when this nasty sinner next to him, getting what he deserves, says, starts talking to Jesus over the course of these hours, Jesus says, today I tell you you'll be in paradise with me. 
still focused on his people, even in his worst imaginable moment. He is not distracted. Paul says even beyond that, he is the firstborn of the dead. He's not talking about Jesus was like just the baby of this new thing called the church. What he means is like this morning, I drove up here this morning. I was all the way to truth or consequences by the time the first glimmer of daylight poked over those mountains. That's what he's saying. Night is over. Darkness is over. The sun is rising. Jesus is that first glimmer of a new day that will not end. And that new day is God through Jesus making everything new. Paul's dancing between creation and recreation. Jesus made it the first time. So Jesus remakes it the second time. You've got to go back to the original builder if you want it built better than the way it was the first time. You can't hire out some new subcontractor to fix the broken building. The one who made it, designed it, built it with his own blood, sweat, and tears. He has to be the one who comes back and puts it all back together again. This is why Paul keeps talking about he is the creator, he's the recreator, he's the maker and the remaker, the redeemer. He alone can put you back together again. And he alone will put you back together again. Jesus is sufficient is the final thing we see here. And so you don't have to supplement him. If you are a person who takes supplements, vitamins, all this kind of stuff, or you know someone who does, what does that say about their diet? It says in some way or another it's deficient, and I need other stuff to supplement it. Only when we see Jesus as sufficient will we stop supplementing him. What do we supplement Jesus with? What makes us think Jesus is deficient? What are the things we go to to kind of add a little bit of extra life? What do we daydream about to fill up what's, what we see lacking in him? Jesus plus a perfect body or the perfect weight or the perfect cholesterol level depending on your age, the numbers we love and care about in life change as we get older. Jesus plus two or three Amazon Prime packages on my doorstep delivering newness and life and freshness and energy all the time. Jesus plus the next Netflix series, which will catapult me out of the boredom in my life, out of feeling like there's no more water in the sponge, and so I'm always looking for a little extra drop in the next series, and so entertainment becomes life for me. Jesus plus emotional nirvana, where I am impenetrable. Nothing affects me anymore. I'm always buoyant, always happy. These are, the, these are the supplements that we, we, we yearn for, we give our lives for, because we already see him as deficient. Jesus plus my political party and power. I can only imagine life being okay if my people are the ones passing the laws. Do you see how all of these things are here in our lives because we are like me, those first nine Years and 11 months in Athens, Georgia. Familiarity breeds content. Man, I've been here. There's got to be something else. Paul, Jesus, is pulling back the curtains, even this morning, letting you see himself, rediscover him all anew so that you would put roots down, cancel the moving truck, kill the daydreams, and know this is where my life is. My life is built on treasure. 
In Jesus are all the life-sustaining resources for him, for you, for his church, for eternity. There is no exhaustion. There is no water crisis. There is no silver city, which is now a tourist stop because there's no more silver. There is an infinite supply of all we need and want in Jesus. Here's where we end. You've seen the movie The Room? Came out, I think, a year or two ago. It's a fictional story based on some, some factual accounts of children whose mothers were kidnapped, abducted, and, the, and had their children in captivity. There was a case in Austria, a case in Ohio, where entire little families uh, were born, uh, abused by their abductor and, and impregnated. Their children grow up and never know any life other than a 10 by 10 room literally never knew anything but a 10 by 10 room and, and the things in that room. There's this unbelievable scene in the movie The Room towards the end where this little seven-year-old boy who has never known a day or an image or a moment outside of that 10 by 10 room escapes captivity. His, the abductor uh, has, is changing the carpet in their room. It's, it's gross. It's So he rolls it up. The little boy is inside of this rolled up carpet and he is taking this roll of carpet to the dump. It's a cool, cold, crisp winter day. Leaves are off the tree and the the camera's just looking down at the bed of this truck. And as this boy unravels himself from this carpet, it is unbelievable when you see his eyes, see the sky for the first time. He can't talk. He, what do you say? He, He, He's just looking. And his eyes are welling up with tears. There aren't words for this. He looks left. He looks right. There's blue sky. There's blue sky. There's an entire world out there he didn't even know about. And he can't take it in. It's a hopeful moment in that movie because you know for the seven-year-old little boy, he's got the rest of his life to explore this new creation. This whole new life. This is a passage where Paul invites you to the bed of a pickup truck to look up at the Lord Jesus Christ, perhaps for the first time, and to just watch with your mouth wide open. Say there's more of him everywhere you look. You'll spend the rest of your life exploring him, exploring this new life, this new resurrection world he's bringing into existence. You'll spend the rest of your life, and you'll still have a whole other life needing to explore it all. So sit back. And take it in. Only then will you not shift from the hope of the gospel you've heard. Then you'll be stable. Then you'll find him sufficient. And we'll stop trying to supplement him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need you to show us yourself through your word, through the Lord's Supper, through community, through the the word. We need this. We need this from you. So please come and give us eyes to see you, hearts to believe you, ears to hear you, a community that embodies you. This is our prayer for you. And like that little boy in the back of the truck, help us to be content with knowing we have a lifetime, we have an eternity to lean into and explore and wake up to this new reality you have brought us into. So help us not to rush the process, not to think that it all has to happen today. But even if just today we see a bird or a tree and we're like, what's that? Would we see one or two things in you? Know you just a little bit more 
and love you more. We ask this in your name. Amen.